Oh, here we go. We're live. I thought for a moment there was going to be a little outage. For some reason, my internet has been playing up up until now. So welcome to Shoot the Defence. I'm still, I've got Steve here, mate. How you doing? I'm good, man. How you keeping? Ah, yeah, still breathing. Still breathing. Unfortunate yeah, for some. You got the three points, so. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I've just noticed? These strings are so bloody long. <laughs> oh, my well, God. But that, that was like the vintage shirts, wasn't it? Do you remember the yellow and yeah. blue? Yeah. But it had like the fuck the collar with the the laces that still the, went down. Yeah, yeah, ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, I do. I, I do. This was what well, I think it's funny because I was trying to find uh, this this shirt because I've got it at my mum's, right? But the actual football shirt, and yeah. I came across a hoodie version. I was oh my god, I need to bought it, and. It was too small. I was like, oh, shit, I can't be asked to go through the rigmarole of sending it back. So that was my motivation to to lose weight, and it fits. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, that's that's where I'm going wrong. I'm buying XL now, and I'm just like, <laughs> fit into it. Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. Now, how are you doing anyway? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Season started now, so the stress and the rigors of all that fun. Mm-hmm. Well, look, let's start with your team. The Arsenal, the Arsenal, 2-1 victory over Nottingham Forest, mate. It didn't look like an easy game the last 20 minutes, but you were coasting up until the second goal anyway. Yeah, um, I sound cliche, but it's the sort of same old Arsenal, really. Um, even under Arteta, we're starting to play good football and dominate games, but we're not quite finishing them off yet. Yeah. And I don't know if that's more chance conversion or just dominating in the midfield, because we... I think the last 20 minutes just before they got the goal as well, we're still going gun-ho and leaving our defence quite exposed. And mm. Timber going off and not having Zinchenko ready to come back, I think kind of left us a little bit vulnerable. But what, why, was, why was Gabriel on the bench, by the way? I think it's because Arteta kind of wants to go for this three-diamond, uh, three... Diamond, three formation or free box free right and he's looking for the inverted fullbacks so he's using okay. almost inverted he was using timber inverted as well to begin with and you were seeing sort of rice drop off a little bit more to begin with uh, like in the first half almost acting as like a libero just driving out of the defensive areas and then um tommy Asu came on i think that kind of went to a back three more Party had that sort of free inverted role. Mm. I think he's he's kind of doing a bit of a pep and overthinking the defence. Right. I, I get he wants to get more attacking players on and having someone like Kai Havertz now, a different profile of attacker for Arsenal because he's... One of the problems Arsenal had last year is Jesus and Nketiah kind of play similar styles. Yeah. And Havertz is slightly more of a target man can play off the striker as a number 10. And I think where he's trying to fit him in, as well as Rice, as well as Party, he's tinkering a bit too much. Yeah. There's a comment here from George. He says, now that Timber is unfortunately injured, that means he surely starts now, which I'm assuming he means Gabriel. So by that, I'm thinking White's going to go at right back like last season? Yeah. Um, I think Zinchenko, when he's fit, he'll go to left back. You'll have Gabriel and Saliba in the middle and Ben White outright. And I think you'll start to see Tommy Asu 
maybe compete with Gabriel. Mm. And the reason I say that is I'm a massive fan of Gabriel and how he plays. He he offers a bit more aggression and almost like a defensive blocker than what the others are like. Right. But I think where Arteta wants to play out almost too much, he kind of where where possible will look to not use Gabriel. Right. Got it's been a long time coming. Like as Arsenal were progressing, where Gabriel's been fundamental in our defence, now he's going to be a squad player. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see that. And the thing is, as I said, you guys were coasting. You took the lead, then Saka scored an absolute worldie. The, the lad has got so much ability. It's unbelievable. But what did you make of Declan Rice's league debut? Because I saw him in the second half, kind of like a deep-lying central midfielder, but making these late runs onto the edge of the box. And there was a couple of opportunities where he had where he, he could have scored. I put him in my dream team my FPL team, and people calling me crazy. But when you look at his style of play over pre-season and in the Community Shield and on Saturday, he does seem to have a more advanced position at Arsenal. I don't see him being this holding midfielder like he was at West Ham. No, I think I think you're right in that sense. And I think where we play with inverted fullbacks, where it's one or two, when they move in, it gives Rice a bit more of a, a chance to bomb forward. Yeah. So, where you've seen Pep do this whole three-two-two-three formation, Arteta's doing that, but trying to convert it into a diamond. So right. that inverted fullback, whether it's Timber, Zinchenko, or Party, will go into the pivot. You'll see Rice alongside Erdegaard as that sort of box-to-box player. Um, Rice will be more of a box-to-box. Erdegaard's that free-roaming playmaker, and then you've got. Um, Havertz at the top of the uh, the diamond with Inketia, Trossard, Martinelli, whoever plays centrally. Yeah, I think it will allow Rice, especially because of his his height. He, I don't know if you've seen him run. He he doesn't he doesn't look fast. He just has large strides. Yeah, and I think yeah. he can attack later on. So like the first and second phase of play, especially when you go down the left with Martinelli, he's so direct. He'll take it right down into the corner. He'll cut back. He'll either look for the cross or to the cut back to the edge of the box. And I think this is what you were alluding to. Like Rice is there at the edge of the box, just timing his runs. So sort of as Gabriel catches up with himself or Martinet catches up with himself, he can then go, ah, yeah, go for the cut back now. Yeah. If I'm the opposing defence, I'm bricking it. And I'm just there going, get back into my box. And everyone's getting all the way back, leaving that space um, between the lines of almost the midfield and the attack for Rice to have a shot from the edge of the box. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. And George has followed that up by saying maybe if he stays on that formation, Gabriel goes central and Saliba goes for that inverted left-back role given his favourite foot. I actually didn't think about that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think if if Arsenal go to the back three proper, you'll see Gabriel be the middle or Tomiyasu. Yeah. And- White and Saliba be the left and right centre-backs. Yeah. Only because I think how Arsenal will start to play is when you look at the sort of, let's say, traditional 1990s fullback, they used to stay in the back line. Sometimes they'd bomb forward, but more often than not, they stay set. I think that's what Saliba and White will become if they play more central. Yeah. And I noticed that Martinelli was almost like a wing-back himself. Yeah. You guys went to that three at the back, yeah. It's... I'll tell you, Martinelli for the assist. 
<laughs> it's ridiculous. I don't know <laughs> it or not, the audacity to do that. Mm. But then, saying that, I don't think Forrest were bad. The, they defended well, I'll give them that. I just think that when you got, you grabbed that second goal, the game went a little bit flat. You weren't creating that many opportunities. And it, as the game grew, they got more and more confident. It was just those substitutions where they they gave it a go. And I'm sure we're going to discuss this in a bit. The same with United, Newcastle, even City to some extent. The way that they, they play, they're so high up the field that they're easy to get in behind with those balls over the top. And yeah. it looked like you guys, that, that was happening with you guys. Yeah, I th- I... it's it's a weird one. I do think this, this season you're going to see a lot of more adventurous attacking teams and almost a lot of space left behind in defence. Yeah. I, I do think like the role of a, a stopper defender or like a a slower centre-back is going to be phased out. That's why I think mm. the likes of Harry Maguire, I don't think he's going to find many teams that will suit him in the Prem other than a David Moyes archaic deep line. Yeah. When you look at, when you look at how team, quite a lot of the teams want to play this year, a lot of it is a sort of a, a mid to high press, a high line. And when it works, it works. When it doesn't, you turn into Aston Villa, as Una Emery found out. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but I mean, like, I'm going to sound harsher, but like, for us, almost seem a little bit too calm this season, given the owner's reputation for being a bit of a. Um, it set us all I'm saying. I'm not saying anything about it. They've had like a reasonable, a reasonably sort of settled transfer window. I think one thing Steve Cooper needs to to work out is what's his best attacking um, combination because Gibbs White has to start. I, I think he's an absolute gem of a signing for him but it's trying to find the right balance in the midfield and the right strikers to play either side of him. Yeah, yeah. We had that Johnson had that chance earlier on, and if he put that put that chance away, then obviously it's a different game. But there's a comment here, well, a question, should I say, from George again. He says, uh, what do you think about the Raya edition? Two number ones can either benefit Ramsdale or hurt his confidence. I think... I think it will help him. Yeah. Um, I don't... I'm going to go a bit of a tangent before I go on to Raya. I don't know if anyone saw the, if you saw the interview that uh, Matty Turner came out with. I think it was on ESPN today. Okay, no, I didn't know. They basically said, do you think you did enough at Arsenal to, you know, get more opportunities? And he's kind of gone, look, I I didn't get as many opportunities as I'd like, but ultimately that comes down to me and I need to be pushing my teammates. And he was quite sort of, holding himself accountable, but he also said, the more that I pushed myself, it pushed my teammate. So when I had a good game in Europe or in one of the cup competitions, he goes, I thought, you know, that's my opportunity. And he goes, but then Ramsdale stepped up and had really good games off the back of it. So I think that Arteta is trying to create a mentality of you are competing for spots, whether you're, you know, the best or elite or untouchables, there is none. But I think he's trying to sort of change the mindset of players of just because you may not be starting, you're not doesn't mean you're not contributing to the team. And I think in the training environment, you have someone like Raya, similar profile to Ramsdale. So if Ramsdale isn't playing well, 
Raya can step in. I think Turner had a different profile, which if Ramsdale didn't play, Arsenal had to play slightly different with Turner in goal. Not to say he's bad or anything. It was just a different... In the same way like United, now that you've got a new goalkeeper, you're, you're going to play slightly different to what you would with De Gea. And it's not to say De Gea was a bad goalkeeper. He just didn't suit the style that the manager necessarily wanted. Yeah, but the thing is, the, the one thing that De Gea and Ramsdale have in common is that they've got big mistakes in them. Big mistakes in them. Whereas we haven't seen that yet with Onana. I think he's got a few mistakes in him. But Raya seems to be more of a reliable option than anything. And I think when you've got title run-ins or the games are coming thick and fast, you want that person between the sticks that you can rely on and you know he's not going to have a moment of madness. And we saw that, as I said, we've seen it with Ramsdale. Well, I mean, Reyes, um, he's not Spain's number one, is he? I think that's Sanchez still, or is he? Like Spain's Spain's number one issue is a little bit sort of, say, sketchy. Uh, they drop and change, but to have someone like that who wants that, you know, this the Spanish team wants to play out from the back, it's again, it's as I say, similar profile to him. And if he hasn't got that mistake in him, you're hoping it's either gonna he's either gonna displace Ramsdale and you'll see more consistency, yeah, it's gonna help elevate Ramsdale to the next level, yeah, true, true. All right, uh, let's move on to United, who beat Wolves 1-0 tonight. It was a very fortuitous night for United. You know, if Wolves had extra quality up front, the game would have been over at halftime, I believe. And do you know what? I messaged my mate Danny. Danny's part of the Wolves medical staff, and I saw him when on the television when the penalty wasn't given. He had his hands on his head, and I messaged him. I said, what, you guys did it. Yeah, the clothesline from hell, yeah. <laughs> I've seen wrestling matches that put players... I, that would have put someone away. They could have won the Intercontinental title with that. <laughs> Just... Hardcore match, mate. Hardcore match. Oh. But look, it, it was a horrendous performance from United, I, I must admit. And for me, looking at the way that the first half went, I, I don't know what Mason Mount can actually bring to this team. Not in the role that he was at anyway. And all right, he's going to need time, but... He, he looked like the occasion was getting to him. You wouldn't expect that from a lad that's played at international level, Champions League finals, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But then I can also say, well, I've been saying for a long time that Marcus Rashford isn't a centre-forward, and yet he played that centre-forward position. Garnacho still needs time, but he's another player that appears that if he's up against a defender that has similar pace... He's got nothing in his in his locker, and maybe it's just the first game of me being skeptical or being just over over critical. But I didn't see anyone in that United shirt tonight that could say they, they can pat themselves on the back and they said they they, did, they had a good performance. I, I I can't think of anyone, even Varane, who got the winner, didn't do enough for me. No, I, I think where United, I think United over overachieved a little bit last season with the squad that they've had. And it's not to say that it's a bad squad. I just don't think it's a squad that is synced up. No. You you look at that midfield three that started. Casemiro, Bruno Fernandes, Mason Mount. They don't seem appearing to gel in any way, shape or form. No. Um, mm. Casemiro, I, I wouldn't use in games like this. I, I don't think you need him. 
I think you should have been going sort of with a double pivot and then a number 10 and almost allowing that sort of free roamingness. I, I think Mount got restricted. He didn't know if he was allowed to be box to box or if he, yeah. And as you said, like the occasion was getting to him, like he'd get the ball and like fair play. He's trying to break lines and go forward, but it looked so panicky and, and almost like yeah. root one at times. Yeah. Rashford, as you said, spot on is not a striker. Um, it's not to say that he can't do the role. I just don't think he's consistent enough to do it at the level that United require. Um, and I think Ganacho tonight was his chance to impress, and he didn't. He got exposed a hell of a lot, and I think that that's the reason why Martin. I said this just before we came on. Martinez and Shaw both got booked because they were both overloaded and exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the chance just before half time. Um, who who's playing right wing for Wolves? Oh, Neto. Neto, yeah. Neto running uh, went in inverted, drew Shaw in, and then the right back just overlapped. Yeah. And then he got the cross away, and then far post um, hit it to the far post. Obviously hit the back post, and it's gone out for a goal kick. But that's a two v one on Shaw there. He got caught out, almost got caught dragging with the man. Because if Martinez committed, that's a potential another yellow card. Hence why he got subbed at half-time. Because he has got that aggression about him. Yeah. And I think from a United perspective, you're leaving your defence exposed to a player who hasn't produced enough yet. And you haven't got the balance in the team. Because Anthony, I'm, he's, he's like a modern-day Tarrapt. Like... For FIFA and for like the highlight reels on YouTube, yeah, the, the skills are great, but I'm not seeing an end product from him. Yeah, it's it's, it's all it's all style, but no substance. He, he doesn't use his right foot, doesn't believe in it. And today, when you look at that midfield three, as you mentioned, Casemiro was the deep line midfielder, and Wolves did everything down to a T in terms of Lemina was getting forward, pressurizing. Uh, Casemiro, it's almost as if if you stop Casemiro from playing, you stop United from playing because he's the guy that pings those balls about in the middle of the park. But and, Casemiro and, can't move off the ball well enough. That's why... Yeah, when, that, that's why players like McTominay and Fred were yeah. uh, so useful to United. Then Fred's gone and McTominay came on and United looked better. I was say, even, Eric, anyway. even Ericsson when he came on, he's someone who's got... I don't think he's got enough in him to do the season, but I no. think when he's got those 30-minute cameos, it's like, oh, United can actually step up again now. But if you're relying on someone who's had the misfortune of coming back from a heart attack and, I mean, the fact that he's still playing professional football at an elite level, fair play to him. But yeah. you can't burden this player with that responsibility, yeah. um, especially right. with, with United. And oh, 100%. Yeah, Casemiro, he's going through his villain stage because he's starting to look more and more like Nate from Dead Lasso. <laughs> Crikey! <laughs> well, I tell you what, if if that if that Cunha had his um, shooting boots on, he'd have had a hat trick today. In all fairness, well, the um, thing the thing that made me laugh is Wolves effectively played four four two. They went very basic at one point. Mm. Yeah, they still managed to surround Casemiro. So yep. they, the triggers were spot on. They knew as soon as, as soon as the ball got played into a certain area, their anticipation to press him and to restrict the space. I thought they were well disciplined. Yeah. And, and they've only had four training sessions with O'Neill, by the way. 
and they're not gonna they're probably gonna have to sell a few more players off the back of this uh before the window closes. Yeah. I, I think I think Gary O'Neill has has gone into a club that is destined for relegation and that's through no fault of his own or the players. Yeah. Agreed. That's what happens when you get into bed with a Portuguese agent. Well, let's not get into that. <laughs> let's not get into that. <laughs> All right, Liverpool, Chelsea, one apiece at Stamford Bridge. Liverpool took the lead with Diaz and a new Chelsea signing, You know, their millionth signing or what it would, <laughs> it would seem. Um, the lad from uh, Monaco, which is um, Axel Desai, looks like a pretty decent player, to be honest. Really wow. good player, but where did he come from? Because of all the other signings, you were like, "Did they sign?" Yeah, they signed him. Like everyone had that sort of completely <laughs> forgot about him. But yeah, um, sorry, I interrupted you there. No, 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 it's cool. It's cool. No, because I, I was going to ask you because Liverpool are in control when they took lead, and then afterwards, it's almost as if they ran out of ideas. And then as the second half grew. I saw Chelsea playing a lot of diagonal balls into wide areas, which obviously was hurting mm. Liverpool. Uh, but at the same time, Liverpool still had a few chances. They still had a few chances. So I think it was a good opening game for, for both teams, to be fair. I think either of them would have taken a draw. Yeah, given given the summer that they've had, I think it's it's been a good, I say good result for them almost, because Liverpool... They're having to overhaul their midfield now, um, losing effectively three midfielders, um, bringing in two new ones, but not necessarily replacing their number six, their defensive midfielder, whether it's a ball winner or a playmaker. And Klopp almost had to go four two three one, and it kind of um, restricts what McAllister and Sobel. I'm not, I can't pronounce it. Yeah. It restricts what they were brought in to do. I think they were brought in more to be both sort of box to box, taking it in turns, bombing forward, creative players, but they've almost had to be quite disciplined in this game and allow Gapco almost playing in the 10. And it it worked. He was anonymous as well, by the way. Hmm? Gapco, anonymous. Yeah. It's. People, again, they need to decide what they want from him, whether he's going to play as the number nine or if he's going to play off on the left. Yeah. Um, and I think they're kind of got stuck in a position now because Nunes will start to play more in the nine. And I think this will be his breakout season as it goes on. Yota uh, almost plays as that poacher. So he's the second choice. And you're like, well, Gapko has to play out on the left then because yeah. no one's displacing Salah. But Lucas Diaz has started really well. And I think it's going to be a big season for Klopp. They need a defensive midfielder, a long-term left-back replacement, and maybe a backup to Van Dijk as a left centre-back. But Chelsea, they they should have nicked something from Chelsea when you think how disorganised or how much of an overturn overhaul Chelsea have had. And they're still continuing to add to it. Well, the, the thing is, you mentioned Liverpool's need for a central midfielder, and we'll talk about uh, Lavia and Caicedo in a moment. But I noticed that there were certain points of the game where Trent would move into that defensive midfield role. And uh, in fact, he was the one that played the through ball f- uh, yeah. for Salah, where the goal disallowed. But, but there were some occasions where he'd slip in as a defensive midfielder and you'd see him 
on the left-hand side as well, protecting Robertson. So I don't know if Klopp was thinking just for that game, well, I'll try him out in that position in case we can't get a central midfielder that can play that holding role. But I fully expected Trent to play that more advanced central midfield role that we saw last season, but that wasn't the case. I I think where they haven't got that defensive midfielder, they're having to use Trent as a... Oh, I keep using the whole inverted fullback thing, but he's he's almost having to play as inverted fullback playmaker, but as a defensive playmaker rather than the central midfielder. Um, and I think that kind of alludes to the need for a different type of left back because Robertson likes to go forward, but I think they're going to have to be a bit more cautious now and if they don't get the midfielder that they want. And you sort of touched upon it, like Lever and... Uh, Caicedo, they they both might still end up at Chelsea, which will be absolutely ridiculous if that's true. But they they have a very good squad. I just don't, I think they're missing very key positions that are going to potentially hurt them in the congested spells of the season, especially when you look at Christmas or the sort of the February time just before like champ- uh, European competitions. Now I know they're not necessarily in Europe, but like it's or as where they'd want to be, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. The thing is with Chelsea, there's a comment here from Michali, and he says, I believe that Chelsea this year is an experimental year with the new young players. Under Pochettino, he will produce a decent year. Now, I know I saw that Chelsea lined up with three at the back and they had Chilwell and James as the wingbacks, as you'd expect. But then James went off and then they kind of went to a 4-2-3-1. Mudrik came on on the right-hand side, not the left-hand side. But for me, there's one player that I think will shine for Chelsea this season, and that's uh, Jackson, the striker. Mm. He's got something about him. I know he was isolated, but when Nkuku comes back, they're obviously going to have a second striker. There's still Enzo Fernandez pushing forward. If they do bring in Caicedo and, and Lavia... They've got that protection. Conor Gallagher is still there. And he had a decent game. He wasn't great, but he had a decent game. So I think if Pochettino can figure out his best 11, which I don't even think he he knows himself, to be honest. I don't, I don't even know. But if he can figure that out, then Chelsea will have a chance of getting Champions League yeah. because they're only playing one game a week. But there's another one here, mate. 133 million for an overpriced Caicedo. I mean, come on, he's just a mediocre player. I don't think he's mediocre. And I think a hundred odd million, however much it is, is the going rate for, for for players these days. But you're looking at a guy that only played 23, 24 games last season. And before that, he was on loan in in Belgium, I think he was. Yeah. So well, it's big money. So I'll leave that over to you, mate. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll pose a question to you. Is Rice worth 105? Uh, no. I don't, think, I don't think anyone is worth that money unless they bring it in from a commercial perspective. So I think from... Arsenal's perspective for for Rice, it was we need a player that can play defensive midfield and box the box. And if that's what it costs for us to have that player, we'd rather get him where possible. Because Kaiseido was our second choice and we weren't going to budge any more on sort of 70 or 80. And lo and behold, we've paid hundred about 105 for Rice and Kaiseido is going to now go for about 130. So... On that sense, Arsenal's done all right there. But then when you look at both Chelsea and Liverpool, do they need a defensive midfielder? 
Yes. Do they need it long-term to achieve their goals of Champions League? Yes. I mean, United spent how much on uh, Casemiro? About 60? Yeah, about that. About that, yeah. You got Champions League off the back of it. So it was a risk, but it paid off. And for a young player, if they can get Champions League, say, the next two seasons off the back of it, because he's playing that role that's crucial to it, unfortunately, because of the lack of profile of that type of player, if it helps them achieve their goals, especially for Champions League football, I I say it is what it is, but that's the price they're going to have to pay. And I think, unfortunately, for both Chelsea and Liverpool, with all the players that they have signed, the one player that they haven't signed is that one particular position. And now you're seeing a bidding war go on that's escalated beyond belief. Yeah. Chelsea are finding new ways to escape FFP by giving eight-year contracts to depreciate the value for a longer period. So... It's well, if it's ri- within the rules, mate, if they find the loophole, then there's well, nothing I- that... It's a very smart business decision in terms of costings, but it does impede the manager. And this is where, like, they need to backpotch for the long term because you're going to be, quote unquote, stuck with these players for a considerable amount of time. And yeah. their resale value is going to be almost pittance. So they're not going to make a profit on them. So these players that they've given the eight year contracts, unless they sell them for a massive sell on fee, Chelsea have to build that team around them. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think Poch I think Poch will get the best out of them. I think this season they'll be the entertainers along with Spurs um because they're going to be playing quite direct because I don't think they've got the build up play sussed. So you're going to see a lot of end-to-end football, but I think it is going to be very entertaining for fans to watch. I mean it's going to be terrifying for Chelsea fans from the 80th minute onwards, but it's going to be entertaining for the neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a comment here. Uh, Gossandino says, Chelsea will end up end the season with many players taking a step back. No European football to allocate minutes and they already have four players in each position. Still, they offload a ton to Saudi. Yeah, we saw that. And there was quite a few strange ones for me. Uh, Koulibaly being one of them. The goalkeeper being another. Uh, is is Ziyech still at Chelsea? Is he has he gone to Saudi? I can't remember. Well, I think he, he failed because of his um knee, his medical because of his knee. All oh, right, okay. Then Pulisic him cheap cheaply in the first place. Right, and Pulisic is at Milan because he went yeah. there on loan. Uh, what's Lukaku his name? Will be gone potentially to Spurs <laughs> if that's true. Yeah, and then you have got uh, Loftus Cheek's gone to Milan. Easy join. They dropped the ball with Loftus Cheek. Uh, he's a cracking player, cracking player. But yeah, I, I think you know Chelsea are building something at the moment. But again, it just goes back to what we were saying this time last season, in the sense that are they going to overload the squad to the point where you're going to get a lot of uncertainty? Yeah, and I, a lot of yeah. Well, you look at left back position, whether it's left back or left wing back, Cucurella, um Chilwell. Chilwell. And um, is it Marston? When was at Burnley last season? Yes. Yes. He so, played. He came on at left wing yeah. against Liverpool. And, and you also got Lewis Hall, who I think they're going to try and loan out. Now, that's four players down the left-hand side. So much so they're having to use Midrich on the right now to counterbalance it because they've yeah. got too many. And then you sort of sit and wonder going, 
Um, any other signings? They've got Andre Santos as well. He's a defensive midfielder or a left-sided player. Is it Andre Santos? Pass. Um, Pass. But I think... See, we, I, can't even, we can't even keep up. We can't even keep up. I, th- I think they've been naive with the sellings that they have had because they got rid of Jorginho in, the, uh, in January. And whether you like him or hate him, like because I know he's, he divides opinions on Chelsea fans, I think if you play to his strengths, he can dictate the tempo of the game. Right. And I think that's what Chelsea are going to lack this season. Uh, they lost Kovacic to Man-, Man City for relatively cheap money, which worries me, like how they were willing to let him go. Yeah. And that's obviously to off- offset the spend for other players. But again, they've they've done similar to Liverpool. They've had a massive overhaul, in particular in the midfield. And I don't think they've still quite got the balance right there. What did you make of Raheem Sterling, by the way? I didn't see the Raheem Sterling of old. He seems to have lost a bit of pace. I don't know whether Liverpool just figured him out or they just realised that if you push him deep, he's not going to hurt you. He hasn't got a great range of passing. So I don't know where the future lies for him. I I think he got bought with no real intention of how to get the best out of him. Right. Um, Pep convert, converted him into a poacher. He, he's not a poacher, he's a winger, but Pep converted him with his off-the-ball movements to be that sort of late run in the box, get those tap-ins. And you could see, although he was successful, he wasn't enjoying his football. When you'd watch Sterling in England, in an England shirt, 1v1s down the channels, hugging the touchlines, so a more traditional winger. And he started to enjoy his football a bit. Towards the back end of last season for Chelsea, he's playing in a front two with Jao Felix. Not to say he looks lost, but he looks isolated. He didn't look like he had the support on and off the ball. They were getting him to play a style of football that he clearly hasn't got that skill set for. And now he is that square peg in a round hole at Chelsea. And it's unfortunate for him because I think he was a, I think he still is a very good player. I just don't think he's in a a team or in an environment now that will look to get the best out of him. Yeah, you're right. Well, it is old team, treble winners, beat Burnley 3-0. They play Newcastle next, who won 5-1 against Villa. The City game went the way that I thought it would with City having a lot of possession, Burnley trying to hit them on the counter-attack. When you've got someone like Haaland in the team, <laughs> he's he's a machine. But my man of the match was another player I've got on my FPL team, and that's Rodri. He was sensational. Now, Just not yeah. Rodriguez. Not Rodriguez. No, 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 no. I wouldn't pick him in my team, no. I wouldn't pick him in my team. No, not after the way he talks to me. But... <laughs> But again, City, they haven't been very active in the transfer market so far. They've had lots of outgoings, but they brought in Kovacic, they brought in Guardiola, and that's pretty much it, isn't yeah. it? They look a bit on the, they look a bit bad. You know, De Bruyne went off injured. I don't know if he's going to make it for the weekend. Grealish didn't play. But then when you've got players like Gundogan gone, Mares gone. You know, you've got two players that can really, really... Yeah, big game players. So, what do you expect from City this season, man? 
um, for them to sign a lease from Chelsea. Uh, sorry, from Palace. I think they're going to upspur Chelsea for that one. Yeah. Uh, they need a right winger. Uh, Foden can play that role as like the inverted. I think he done quite well in that position on sat- on Saturday. But they need that sort of depth in those areas. I think it's been interesting how they've used Al- uh, Alvarez as a almost like a 10 or a support yeah. to Haaland. How they've used Rodri, I, there were points on Saturday, and I keep using the word Liberia, but that's what he was. He was almost playing as an auxiliary centre-back. Mm-hmm. He was dropping in so deep, receiving the ball, and then driving forward. Um, I don't think he'll be able to do that all season, but against Burnley, if they give him that space, he, you know, someone as complete as him, he's crucial to City's success. And I think, if, if I'm honest, that... If you're going up against Man City, man Mark Rodri, um, put a physical beast or a physical specimen on Haaland. And then you've only got to worry about eight other outfield players that can score against you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Therein lies the problem. Because you like Cole Palmer. In all fairness, though, yeah, exactly. Cole Palmer, he looks like he can, he can do a job. There but... was, there's talk that he might go West Ham, but I think with with the lack of options, I think this could be his breakthrough year as well, like they've done with um, uh, Rico Lewis. Yeah. Well, look, defensively, they're stacked. Midfield, they're stacked. But up front, they're a little light. And if yeah. he's going to continue playing Alvarez, where, where's the depth, as you said? So I think Palmer will, will feature a lot this season. I do think City need to offload some of their defenders. I think Laporte's got to go. I, I really rate him, but I think he's not going to get the minutes he he wants. So no. he's, he's yeah. And look, someone of his caliber, he should be playing regularly. If he can't do it at City, he'll find someone across Europe. They've technically still got Cancelo. Yeah, I think he's going to go to Barcelona, isn't he? That's a yeah, I know they're trying to work on that deal. Um, but yeah. I th- it's hard for City. It's so long as they don't get any more injuries and they just maybe buy another right winger, whether it's an immediate impact player or even a rotation one. And I could see that uh, Elise going there and I think Pep would convert him almost to be like his new Sterling. You know, a traditional winger likes to go down the touchline. He'll start to convert him and get more goals to his games. Yeah, I can see happening. I agree. And uh, what about Newcastle, mate? Absolutely obliterated Aston Villa. I'm going to say... But a new... I'm going to sound really negative. I don't think Newcastle fans should be getting so excited after that game. Um, I don't think it was a case of Newcastle... Newcastle were very good. Please don't get me wrong. But I think elements of that was... Villa were so bad defensively and tactically naive. Yeah. You're 3-1 down. You're playing a high line with Diogo Carlos, who's come back from an Achilles rupture... So he's not going to be fast. Paul Torres, who has spent three years playing as a as a low, in a low block Villarreal team, the amount of through balls that they were getting. Sorry, I'm going to go into a rant here. Villa's defensive line not fast enough to play a high line, and with Mings going off, you should have gone right mid block, mid or low yeah. block, which ironically is what Unai Emery is used to. The midfield, unless you start uh, McGinn and Douglas Luiz, 
you are leaving yourself exposed to third man runs. And that is exactly what happened. It's one of the reasons why Tillemans didn't go to a big four team in the end. Because if you watch him off the ball, you watch his tracking, he completely... Yeah, he gets caught ball watching. A lot of Newcastle's runs were from midfielders running from deep, breaking the lines, and the midfielder aren't tracking. Uh, Unfortunately for uh, Unai Emery, he's done very well with some of the sign-ins, but he's relying on players who aren't going to fit this high line and get the success that he wants. They need to go 4-2-3-1, mid-block, almost counter-attacking, and be the draw merchants that Emery is. Because he's a draw merchant, he's he's very good defensively how he sets up. But you don't go to St James's Park, a team that is, I say, thriving. You know they're riding the success of getting Champions League. The, the momentum's there, and you go play a high line. It's it's suicidal. Yeah, but mate, do you know what? I don't know if you saw the preseason friendly between the two, and the three all, right? And Villa were doing exactly the same thing, and two of Newcastle's goals. Were practically the the yeah. same sort of the same sort of thing, but what what I found interesting about Newcastle system, which we didn't see last season, is very similar to Arsenal's in the sense that you'd have Trippier as your effectively your right back, but he was like a winger, mm. so Dan Byrne would slip into centre back area with Cher and Botman, and it will give. Uh, uh, Trippier license to get forward, but Anthony Gordon was like Martinelli at Arsenal at the weekend, like a left wing back. Yeah. And then I when think- obviously Villa were playing that higher line, and Harvey Barnes came on, they caused all sorts of problems. But you know, Isaac has, has been a fantastic signing, I believe, and he's keeping Callum Wilson on the bench. But Wilson came on, got his goal. Do you think they still need an additional striker, or is there? Attacking midfielders like your Almirons, like your even Tonali. I know he's a holding midfielder, but Joe Linton. Do you think these players are going to be chipping in with goals? Because I can't see Newcastle, you know, bringing in another centre forward the way that things are right now because they've got goals all over the park. Yeah, I think the the benefit for Newcastle and, and fair play to Hedia Howe because I know both you and I have been critical in the past with him. <laughs> but he's he's shown a, a change in his um, approach to the game, how, how the build-up play's done. And with Isaac, you've got a very tall striker but acts like a pressing or an advance forward. He plays off the last defender. Callum Wilson can be that target man um, as well as a poacher. I think he's more suited to the target man. And that allows the midfielders to run on, as as we saw, to, to run on, on beyond him and get around the back of defences. I think Newcastle will need another striker for next season because I think Real Madrid, if they're not going to go for Mbappe or Haaland next year, Isaac might be a a bit of a left left field choice for, him, for a number nine. And that's what I think they need to be mindful of because bigger clubs will be looking at him now. Of um, course. And he's, he's done it in La Liga anyway, so it's not as if he, he'd be new to the league. I mean, what you what you said about Kieran Trippier almost playing as a wing back, and then you'd had Anthony Gordon drop off. Anthony Gordon, I think, has started the season very strong, and I don't just mean the one game. I mean pre-season. You're starting to see the player that he should have been at Everton. I think he wasn't that at Everton for different reasons. I don't actually mm. think it's for him, 
I think Trippier has had a bit of a rejuvenation, especially now that they've signed uh, Livermento. Livermento, yeah, good signing. Very good, good signing. Um, so I think they're starting to build a good squad there. It's it, it, whether it's got that depth for Champions League football because the intensity, it's not even the intensity, it's going to be less training time. You think you Wednesday yeah. match, you fly back, your recovery day, you're only doing tactics and light work. It's can you keep that squad rotated, happy, and still sustaining the levels that you'd expect from them? And I think this is going to be a new challenge for Eddie Howe. Um, it's not to say he's out of his depth, I think it's a new challenge because he's never had the European football element. And it's how we can navigate that. I don't know why we're saying Eddie Howe. He's not the manager, is he? Tindall. Um, Newcastle. Yeah, it's Tindall, isn't it? <laughs> oh. you look at it. Jason Tindall's the front man and Eddie Howe's just in the background like, yeah, well done, man. well done. Like right in the camera. Um, I, I, just, I just think Jason Tindall is like the backup dancer that wants to be Beyonce. Oh, he's like, come on. <laughs> he's an over-enthusiastic backup dancer that is like giving it the proper name. Um, but yeah, I think it will be an interesting challenge for him. And I, the, the one thing that they're going to have to be mindful of is how they approach now that they're in their sort of their, their phase two. Mm. Also, we're sort of a mid-table team fighting relegation under Ashley. They've now brought in and invested wisely. The players that they bought almost during their phase one was very good. They've brought in players that can slowly sort of now, they've gone from important players to now slowly being integrated into down to squad players. It's whether they can now take that next step. And I think for how it's, how he manages the European football. And I think there is that element of ruthlessness of even if he does well, if another manager of a higher caliber comes, becomes available, do they stick or twist? Because you've seen it happen before. Yeah. And if, yep. you know, rumours were true at PSG, if Luis Enrique was going to go, um, I still think he will before Christmas, you reckon, I almost think Newcastle will be sort of sitting there going, well, do we get him in? And I know it sounds really hard. I do think that's a... But if you're ambitious, that you can lose sight sometimes of building a long-term plan and you may go for that reputational boost. Especially if you yeah. want to get high-profile targets, it's, yeah. it's. I think it will be an interesting season for Newcastle in terms of that. And I think for Eddie Howe's development as a manager, he'll be at a crossroads whether he's given that support to continue his trajectory, or will he be a sort of sacrificial lamb for Newcastle to achieve their goal and become a, a powerhouse in the Premier League? No, I see your point. I see your point. Well, look, let's let's move on. Let's, let's move on to Spurs very quickly because I think we've done very well for time to bonus. There's still a couple more things I'd like to discuss. But Spurs against Brentford, they drew two all. Uh, Possibly Coglu's first game. In fact, the game was delayed by a few minutes because sanitary problems, apparently sanitation problems, that there wasn't any water in the stadium, which is bizarre because that stadium is only like two or three years old, but. I think there was no, from what I heard, there was a miscommunication. I think the Brentford staff got that wrong because everyone was oh. asking, what do they think of Tottenham? And everyone shouted, shit. Oh, like, oh, fuck. Problems. oh, my God. 
You fell for that. Uh, was... um, it's late. It's late. Well, look, did, did you see anything that Spurs fans could be enthusiastic about? Because I think, no, nothing. No, massively. I think they've got a lot to... I think with the new manager, he brings a likeable presence. Um, <laughs> that makes me sound harsh, but when you look at the previous managers in terms of Conte, Mourinho, and even Nuno for a little bit, they were very sort of... Um, Authoritarians. Yeah, and a little bit sort of... Re- the relationship with the media became, became a bit strained. Whereas yeah. when, when you look at his press conferences, not just at Spurs already, but at, at Celtic, Sorry, he's yeah. very, very pragmatic. Um, he holds himself accountable. And I think... The way that he conducts himself, you saw it about, um, there was an interview when he was at Celtic about the Japanese players that he brought in. And he just said, he goes, look, I, I knew them because of how, where I coached there. I think it's very disrespectful that because they're from this league, they're not good enough and all this. And he's very pragmatic in his approach and he's very sort of grounded. And I think how he likes to play attacking football he maybe is going to be that arm around the shoulder that some of those players needed. Um, I don't think, again, I, don't, I think Conte and Mourinho are very good managers. I think the players that they had at Spurs at the time weren't necessarily best suited to those managers. Um, and when, when you look at it now, I mean, James Madison is going to create so much just through set pieces alone, um, but he'll have a bit more freedom. I think, I mean, defensively, they still look rocky. Um, He's been stitched up by them permanently signing Pedro Poro, who's not a right-back, and nor do they want to play wing-backs. The fact that Man City had an option to recall it, uh, to buy him back and refused, uh, surely you'd be thinking, okay, maybe he doesn't suit the Premier League or his his style isn't quite what we're after. Uh, They've brought Hugo Lloris, but 20 years younger. Uh, the goalkeeping situation is still the same. I think that's Daniel Levy being tight and not throwing the money at David Rea when they should have. We're talking about how David Rea is going to Arsenal. He could have been going to Spurs two months ago. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, the thing is, what I will say about Ange is, I think because of the situation at Spurs and obviously the way that Spurs fans feel about Levy, the bullshit that's going on with the head honcho, so to speak, and also them them selling Harry Kane, it's almost as if Ange has got so many get-out-of-jail cards at the ready because he started with all to, like, you know, everything's against him. The odds are stacked against him fully. So anything that he does is going to be a positive than a negative. We saw the players going to the fans before kickoff and doing their huddle right by the away supporters. Again, that's not been done before. Perhaps that's something that was uh, an idea by Ange to say, right, this is siege mentality. Kane's gone. Everyone is ruling us out. We're not going to do this. Let's just show how much of a team spirit that we have. And to be fair, I think until Brentford scored the first goal, they they were all right. But the defensive problems, they're still there. That they've bought a new defender, um, VDV. They've the lad bought, from um, Germany, the Dutch lad. 
It, it looks a good signing, but I think he's been thrown in the deep end a bit too much too soon. Mm. Um, left back is still an issue for them. I know they... Oh, I'm going to quickly check this just so I get my notes right. Who did they have start there on Saturday? Because they've got regular... Oh, um, uh, uh, Udogi, was his name? Yeah. Uh, it is... Double check. Uh, yeah, Udogi. Well, I thought done reasonable well. Reasonable. Um Again, first season, almost his debut, in fact, for Spurs. Um, so you've got him, you've got Regulon, who I think was un- sort of fairly dismissed under yeah. Conte. Emerson Royale, just... They've signed the same right-back in Emerson Royale and Pedro Poro, and neither yeah. of them work. Um, well, they've also got Jed Spence. Who's now been transfer-listed. That was clearly a Daniel Levy signing because they were like, yeah, we need to buy homegrown, tick that box. Yeah. And then they've clearly had no plan for him. And I think that year off, I say a year off, that year of lack of competitive Premier League football has left him a little bit regressed a bit. And that's through no fault of his own. I just think when you're not playing in that sort of competitive environment. Um, Christian Romero going off so early on. I think that's a worry for them. A concussion, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he... Yeah. You say it's a concussion. I I think he probably had a head loss because he didn't understand what Spurs were doing when they were playing out from the back. (laughs) They started to play good football. I I hate to say it, but they're looking composed under the ball. They're trying to play with an intensity. Um, I think the balance in the midfield was right. By having Basuma play there, he's a slightly more mobile version of Hoiberg. Um, he may not be as composed, but his role is to break up play. Someone like Skip has been given that sort of, I say defensive playmaker role, but it's someone who looks composed on the ball. And if he yeah. he can transition that and get that into Madison, I think they're fine. And Spurs fans will hate me for saying this. I think they long prepared for Harry Kane leaving last season. I think Richarlison was Kane's replacement and Kane didn't go. Because why would you buy Richarlison to be a backup number nine for 50 million? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Son on the left and Kuliczewski on the right with Richarlison playing through the middle. I think you'll start to see more goals from Richarlison or you'll start to see, I don't want to say the R9, but you'll start to see that type of Richarlison that you see. <laughs> oh, God. No, God. <laughs> um, and I think even their summer signings, you look, they've got Manuel Solomon. Who I thought was a very was very good for Fulham, so I think they've they've given themselves that sort of depth in the front line because he can play through the middle, he can play out in the channels. Um, Perisic is still there. I don't know how they convinced him to stay, but hopefully they play him in a more advanced position as opposed to wing back or full back. And I mean, on the bench they had Brandon Anderson. I know he's a goalkeeper, but well, they even brought on Saar. For, yeah. I, I think, begrudgingly, I think if they can keep Ange for this first season, Spurs are going to be they're going to be entertainers like Chelsea because they're just finding their way into the new system and a bit of a change of culture. But I think they are starting to build for the long term. Yeah. The issue they have is the senior management and the board and how they treat the club and treat the players. Well, this is it. And obviously there are a lot of Spurs fans that don't want 
Levy, they're saying Enoch out, etc., etc. But there's one player that we haven't mentioned. And this player, I've been... From the moment I saw him play in France and people were saying, oh, he's he's the next this, he's the next that. I, I already had my reservations and that's Ndombele. And he joined them in 2019. Club record fee. Yep. He's played under Pochettino. He's played under the uh, the Portuguese coach. What was his name? Um, Nuno. Sorry? Nuno. Nuno, yeah. Nuno Espirito Santo. Mourinho. Conte. And even Ange doesn't want him. Even Ange, who, you know, everyone starts with a clean slate, he's trying to get rid of him as well. So what does that tell you about the play? Because I, people were, were blaming Mourinho and they were saying that, you know, Mourinho had the cheek to knock on his door during COVID and go for a jog to get his fitness up. Mourinho was a bad person. Well, I think, I think that's the player's personality um, instead of their skill set. And I think it's the environment that they're in. Um, I think the disciplinarian didn't work. So when you look under the three managers of Conte, Mourinho and Nuno, that wouldn't have worked under him. Um, I think Pochettino, he was he came in under a time at Spurs where they were investing money inconsistently. I don't think he was needed at the time when Spurs signed him. I think there were other priorities that Spurs should have been focusing their money in. Yeah. And he's kind of he's kind of been a loose part. And I I will actually argue maybe Ange does want him. And I think maybe Ange is the sort of manager that could get the best out of him, but I think he may be instructed to offload him. Yeah, that's a point. That's and I point. think that's the downside because a player like Ndombele, you don't become a, a bad attitude player. It can just be a clash of personality. And I don't think he responds well to the disciplinarians. I, again, I'm just, we are just guess, hazarding a guess it. I don't think he responds well to disciplinarians. I think he is that type of player that maybe wants to feel loved and maybe feel important because at Leon he was that. And my God, he ran the show. But I don't think he quite suits this Spurs team or... No will be allowed to suit this Spurs team because there will be mismanagement from higher up saying, get rid of him. Yeah. Well, speaking of get rid of him, because we've got a couple <laughs> more subjects to touch on, Harry Kane, by Munich, made his debut the other day. They lost in the cup final 3-0, or should I say the Super Cup final. But see, th there's one thing that surprised me. Cast your mind back to when Gareth Bale left Spurs and he joined Real Madrid for a, a club record fee. Do you remember the, the hoo-ha and it, it went on for three or four days, the the Gareth Bale story. In fact, they're probably still talking about it now. Yeah. But Harry Kane left and yeah, there was a bit of noise about it. But you're looking at the England captain leaving Spurs, going to Bayern Munich. And it's almost as if it didn't happen. Yeah, we had the whole, oh, Willie, won't he? Because obviously there was a, a disagreement where the lad was waiting for the, his plane to take off and he weren't allowed to get on, et cetera, et cetera. That's Daniel Levy trying to be in control of his Yeah, you could tell. You could tell. It's a little bit of, you wanted to get, you wanted to leave a couple of years ago. You're leaving on my terms kind of thing. But it's almost, it's almost as if it didn't happen. You know, no one's, it's, it's weird. I, think, I don't know. I think Spurs fans have been preparing for it for some time. 
it you know it's almost an inevitability if I sound like I'm 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 just dumping on there. Um, oh, that's actually a very good point. Well, yeah, <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of selfish players, and again, I I almost think it, Spurs had this problem that United had, and I think they're starting to rectify it under Ten Hag a bit. They were buying players for the sake of buying players. Um, a lot of what you're seeing in football now. It's not just the player's skill set, it's the player's personality traits. Yeah. And it's not to say who's a good egg, who's a bad egg. It's do they fit the system of, or the environment of the club? So someone like Ancelotti is more of a man manager. He He's more, can I get the best out of the players? Whereas someone like uh, Mikel Arteta or Pep are very system-based. And I think Spurs have gone, right, we're going to sign this player. You do what you need to from a and I don't think those players necessarily suited the environment they're going into. Alluded to that within Dombele. I don't think he responds well to authoritarians. And as a result, you saw him hinder. So I don't think their transfer policy was all that well sussed out. And didn't their no. old football get arrested anyway? Yeah, uh, Petraki. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Petraki. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. It's a common theme with Spurs. Um, but going well, back to- I'll say, going back to Harry Kane, I think because of the way the club's been mismanaged, because when Spurs were getting Champions League, when they lost to Liverpool uh, under Poch in the final, that was the, right, we've reached a ceiling now. We need to push on. We need to invest and we need to go higher. And Levy's gone, nah, if you've got that squad, you can go again. That squad was mentally beaten. And you could see it. They, They lost a bit of... Like the players loved uh, Poch, you ask any of them, they loved him, but he couldn't get that extra ten percent out of them like he did the year before. They needed a bit, uh, some fresh, I say fresh players, a bit of a, a turnover. Daniel Levy didn't allow it, or he didn't allow the manager to invest how he wanted to, and I think it's got yeah. to the stage now where Spurs fans have become so disillusioned with Daniel Levy, it's almost like they don't blame Kane for leaving. Well, mate, if you if you, if you look at Arsenal, say twenty nineteen, how many players that were there in twenty nineteen are still at Arsenal now? Very few, like Rob Holding, and one of the reasons Rob Holding's there is because you hear the stories about him behind the scenes of what he was like, what he's like as a teammate. Um, right. So this this is this is what leads me on to my next bit because if you look at Spurs at the end of last season. Not not this season now. The end of last season. Hugo Lloris. All of these players were in the 2019 squad that reached the Champions League final. Yeah. Lloris. Yeah. Davison Sanchez. Eric Dyer. Who else? Ben Davis. That's four already. Right? Uh, yeah. Skip. All right. He didn't play, but he was part of the squad. You had Nine. Son, Kane, Le Moura. Because he obviously left in the summer. Yeah. So that's that's seven, eight players that are in the squad from four years ago. Now, I've got a mate that's a big Chelsea fan. And at the beginning of last season, he was saying to me, Stel, we need a, a big like clear out because it's gone stale. And, it, you know, if you look at Chelsea Champions League final two, three years ago, I, I, there aren't that many players left from no. the team lineup. I mean... Yeah? You look at you look at how 
I'm going to use Ferguson and Wenger because they both said this about their squads. It was every few years you'd replace one or two players. You'd never do yeah. a massive change. You do a massive, you do a small little change, a progressive change. So after four years, you see a new spine of the team. You see a new makeup of the team, and you're slowly replacing players without upsetting too many. Um, each player has a life cycle where they become integral, then they come back up, and then they get moved on. Whereas Spurs has kind of gone right, eight players, we need you. Yeah. And after that long, can you expect their performances to still be of that trajectory? No chance. No, no chance because they get comfortable. Yeah. And, get and comfortable. that's and that's not any of their faults. Okay. This is human nature here. If you're in a job for four years and you know what you're good at, you're like, right, I can do that. Are you going to go above and beyond? Well, there's no progression for us. Management don't want to go Champions League. They don't want us to push yeah. them for titles. Why am I going to bend over backwards for it? And that's not to say that, oh, footballers, that's the wrong attitude. It's it's human nature. How do you stay yeah. motivated if the company that you work for, the football club that you play at, show no ambition? It's, it's, it's hard. And I can imagine it's hard for Spurs fans. Um Christ, I'm being sympathetic. An Arsenal fan being compassionate to Spurs. <laughs> they got into the Champions League and they still didn't win anything. And that's not to say, oh, Spurs without a trophy, all that banter. It's, can we not challenge for the FA Cup? Even the League Cup. There's yeah. a reason why Pep used to go for it in his first few seasons more than anything else. Because he's like, I want to win this so that people have that winning mindset to go on for the rest of the season. United got top four. And I think that's no small part down to winning the, the League Cup. It was an element of we can win things, we can achieve stuff. Yeah, it's can on. yeah. And and United needed that. And I think Spurs need it. Spurs won the they last won the League Cup, but they didn't really they kind of kicked on because they became a top four team and displaced Arsenal for a few years. But there's nothing to show for it now. Yeah. Was not when Chelsea won the League Cup under Mourinho it was his first season, <laughs> and they were absolutely chuffed about it. And people could say, "Oh, well, it's just a League Cup," but it, that's where you get them winning mentality from. That's how you breathe winners. Yeah, and that's just—it's just simple. And then you look how many players then went on to win so many trophies, not just under Mourinho, but at Chelsea in general. And I think with Spurs, they need a trophy. They need a trophy. It's been too long for them. They need someone that's Way won too long. as well. Um, you know, Arsenal, I know everyone rinsed us for celebrating the, the Community Shield. It's a trophy. I don't care if it's glorified friendly. We've won something. The signings that we've brought in this year, Kai Havertz, he's won stuff, albeit at Chelsea, when we signed Jorginho in the summer, uh, sorry, in January. Again, he's won stuff at Chelsea. Rice has just come off the back of the uh, Europa Conference. Timber. Timber's, Timber's won a title, hasn't he? Yeah, a few titles. Right. We've, won, we've, we've signed players that are, are used to winning. So for that, it's kind of adding to the culture of, right, we've got the taste for a trophy. Let's keep going. Yeah. And if it's the Premier League, if it's the FA Cup, so be it. Um, it worries me that Arsenal are doing bad in the FA Cup after winning it. But we... You can see there's intent there. Whereas when you look at Spurs, it's kind of for Ange, it's I'm hoping he gets given the clean slate of right, what what are our targets? What can we aim for? And then he can develop the culture that Spurs need. And they need a few winners in there. For sure. 
for sure. Well, look, how how well do you think Harry Kane's going to do in the Bundesliga then? Um, I don't think he'll get the numbers that he got in the Prem. Um, I think he'll do well. I think you'll start to see a side of Harry Kane that was similar to under Mourinho, where he'll create a lot more. I think he'll his goals may drop off slightly, but his assists will continue to rise. Yeah, the way that Spur, uh, the way that Bayern will utilize him now, especially with their young attacking players that aren't quite strikers, um, you'll start to see him link up a lot more. Yeah. I, I still think he'll get 15, 20 goals easily. Um, he, but he's not quite the Lewandowski that Bayern. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. Well, look, mate. One more thing before we wrap it up. Neymar looks like he's going to Al Hilal in Saudi Arabia. They're talking about an £86 million deal where he's going to earn up to £129 million quid a year. Now, look, this is probably going to get a few dislikes and a few comments. But I think Neymar is probably one of, if not the most overrated player in this generation, I believe anyway. I've never actually sat down and thought, right, this guy is going to light up the occasion. It's almost as if he was happy to ride on the coattails of Messi and Suarez. And he hasn't done anything at Paris Saint-Germain for the Brazilian national team. You could argue he's been unlucky with injuries at the World Cup. But I think that's more of a psychological thing than anything. All right, the injury in a, in the World Cup in Brazil where he did his back, all right, I'll, I'll give him a blight for that. Yeah, because he had a good World Cup then. But I know, I know yeah. what you mean in terms of... Um, for someone of his ability, he had a blend of the Ronaldinho flair, but a bit more directness about him. He was a bit more of a... Not quite a centre-forward, but he was more that sort of direct final third player. Whereas Ronaldinho was that traditional number 10 that got shifted out to the left and got told to have fun. I, I think Neymar made the wrong choice of going to PSG because people forget that season where it was him, Suarez and Messi, they absolutely dominated La Liga. Yeah. Um, it's not to say that he... There was a period where he was almost third choice because I think... For a brief moment, Suarez was more efficient than Messi. And Messi was almost playing second fiddle to Suarez. I think Suarez, the way the way that Barca got the best out of him for one season in particular, I think Neymar kind of got pushed down the pecking order a little bit. Yeah. I think yeah but he, the thing is, Neymar seems to be that kind of player where he has to be the king. Yeah. He was never going to dethrone Messi. And then he went to PSG... And that was round about the time when Mbappe was yeah was uh, was it Mbappe smashing it in Monaco and did he come after or before Neymar? I can't remember. Uh, I think I can't he remember came... after or before. Yeah, I think he came after because after it was like the Neymar's Latin show. It's again, Nate. I feel for Neymar in the sense of I don't think he's been at the right club to to give him that sort of centre stage profile that he's always craved um, I think his best football was at Barca I think by going to PSG it was a vanity project I think he would have flourished under at an AC or a, into Milan um, because I don't think he would have 
gone anywhere else in La Liga. I know there was rumours that he might go to Madrid at one point, but I don't think he could be that person. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, he, he joined Mbappe at the same time. Oh, he did? Both, oh. Yeah, but Mbappe was on loan for one season and then he made it permanent yeah. in 2018. Neymar joined at the same time. So again... Oh, no, while... no, they signed him. They signed Neymar like first and then they, they had to do Mbappe on loan because they would have smashed... Yeah, uh, that's right. But that's then right. even that transfer in itself, you're, you're Neymar, you're like, yes, I'm finally centre of attention. I'm going to be the f- poster child of this club. Oh, you've just brought in the next French prodigy. Yeah. Well, this is it. And the thing is, the way that the move from Barcelona to PSG happened as well, it was ugly. It yeah. wasn't an amicable ending to, to the relationship. It was like, I'm going whether you like it or not. And that pissed off a lot of people because obviously Paris Saint-Germain at the time, they were they were building and there, there was more of a negative connotation yeah. towards PSG than what there is now. But it's Neymar leaving Barcelona for a club with not as much history as Barcelona. So clearly it was it was money oriented, and I get it. But would you would would Neymar be the first one to say I've had a stellar career at PSG? I don't think he would. I mean, you look at Zlatan for example. Zlatan went to PSG, became their all time top goal scorer, and went. Actually, do you know what? I'm still not finished. Yeah, and then he's he's carried on. I know he's retired now, which is devastating. But how he was able to go to United, play in America, and then uh, after the PSG years, people thought it was like a a retirement tour, but it wasn't. He just yeah. kept pushing himself, and then he won um, Serie A with Milan. Well, don't forget he he did his ACL at United at the age of what thirty yeah. six. <laughs> and he came back and he still won the league in, in yeah, Italy. He, so he, I think he has that winner's mentality. I think Neymar doesn't necessarily have the, I don't want to say he doesn't have the winner's mentality. I don't think he had the same mindset as mm. someone like Zlatan did. And that's very hard to say. But I think even Messi has that sort of mindset of Zlatan. Messi's gone to yeah. into Miami, but I guarantee you he's, he's out there to win. He's out there to raise his profile. He's going to win a few things and then he'll probably go back to Argentina and retire um, at his first club. Yeah. And he was old boys. Yeah. I think that's one, yeah. But uh, again, I think with Neymar, he's he's another example of a player that has achieved so much in football, but he's fallen out of love with the sport. That's that's how it seems to me anyway, in that he knows that he's going to get a, a massive paycheck in Saudi Arabia. And look, hats off to him. If you can do it, oh, yeah. you know, I've got no problem with it. But the way I've seen people on social media, again, it's probably the wrong way to gauge you know, the, the, the opinion or fact of, of a talent. But I hear people talking about him being generational and being one of the best... I, I don't see it. I've I've never seen it. Maybe when it was at Santos, he, he had a lot of... I remember when we first started doing this podcast 11 years ago, my friend John was waxing lyrical about him. And, you know, he saw these goals that he scored in the, in the Brazilian league and he was ripping defenders apart. And then, you know, he came to Europe and he was the man, but he wasn't the yeah. man. He never was. He never think, has been. 
I think he did get elements of his enjoyment kicked out of him because he was a flamboyant, showboating player. And then some of the players would just be malicious and go, I'm just going for your ankle. You've seen some of the injuries he's, he's attained from it. And it's, it's a difficult one of how do you sustain that style of play without getting the living crap kicked out of your ankles. Yeah. But that being said, I'm going to use a really weird analogy here. But hear me out. Messi and Ronaldo, they're your top two. Yeah. They are your WWE champions. And it's, it's where I sound weird with the analogy. They're your, they're your poster child of football. They're the best of the best. Yeah. Neymar had that ability to compete for the WWF, WWE championship, but he's not. He was an intercontinental title or a US title. He was always that, that second tier alongside yeah. your Robins, um, I'd argue your Ribberies, your Lewandowski's, Suarez. But he's not there now. He's lower. And that's the thing. Maybe what what's happened to him? Where where has that gone? Because he was almost at one stage too good for the secondary tier, but not quite good enough for that elite. And then yeah. he is it almost like an Icarus thing? He flew too he flew too close uh, too close to the sun in terms of was going to be the poster child at PSG, and then he got another sort of kick to his ego when Mbappe came in and. If you're him, you just go. What's the point now? Yeah, yeah. I look. I, I firmly believe that the the Barcelona breakup was the thing that eventually. Yeah. Well, it it was it was the beginning of the end. You know, and I know people are going to say, well, you know, he went on to win like five French league titles, but yeah. uh, no disrespect to league one because it's it's a very very good league. But when you're PSG and you've got that money and you've you know you're you're constantly changing managers, but yet you're still winning titles. It says it all. I mean, for crying out loud, he's won one Champions League and that was in 2015, eight years ago. And when it came to the last final that he was in, in in 2020, anonymous. Yeah. Um, And that was, and that was during COVID when there was no one in the stadium. So you can't say that, you know, it was, it was the moment. It was, do you know what I mean? It's, what do you think the Saudi League is going to turn into? Because I think, I think how they've invested with the players, there's a few that are just sort of winding down in their careers, but they've got quite a few players that have hit uh, reaching their peak. The different because in China they didn't quite get that. I, uh, yeah, but in, yeah, but in China because the the president changed the rules in yeah, China within three years. <laughs> he, he changed the rules and he was like, no, there's not enough Chinese. The, the difference is, and, and this is the other thing, the misconception about the Saudi League. Not every Saudi team has got that spending power. Only four or five do. Yeah. And I've got friends that coach out their second division teams and they don't have that kind of money. So it's only four or five teams. So at this current moment, yeah, they're bringing in these big names and it, it's great. And I think it's purely for Saudi vision for 2030 with having that big exhibition and they're going to bring in that that new city that they're building it's yeah. all it's all linked they've got the golf they've got the wrestling the f1 etc etc it's all linked Un- unless unless fifa or uefa are they have a gun put to their heads and they're told right you guys need to have the saudis involved in a major competition and by that, you know, not put them in like the Champions League. No, but what but I'm saying is, I think the World Club Cup is beginning yeah. to grow a bit more. And Wenger alluded to it a few years ago when he first took on his role at FIFA. 
he said football is a global sport, but we don't do enough to globalise it. Yeah. Um, how that Club World Cup works will be interesting to see um, because the travel and the logistics for it. Will that become an extra tournament? Will you see that every, you know, in between the Euros and the World Cup? That's well, happening every year anyway. Yeah, but it's on a smaller scale compared to... Yeah, I um, agree. I, I think it will grow and become an end-of-season summer tournament. Um, but it's whether the players... Well, it's it's going to be a tri- tricky one for clubs because how much do you really want to invest in that? You want your players to have their time off. They're not going to get that. No, but again, it, it just boils down to money. And th- this is my thinking, and I've felt this for a long time. You know how you see a lot of Premier League teams playing in the United States over the summer for the, their pre-season matches, right? Yeah. Right now, a lot of these matches have been shown on Peacock, which is NBC, and, um, NBC yeah. right? Because they're the main Premier League broadcast in the United States, and they're tied in with Sky Sports. So that's their way of pr- uh, pr- um, promoting the, the product in, in the United States. But we've also seen Premier League teams play each other in the Far East. We've seen it in South Africa. I don't know if you remember, in the early 90s, Arsenal played Man United. Because we, we yeah. used to do the tour out there because it was a big, big, big money one. Um, exactly. We even did one in China. And David Seaman had a knee injury and forced him out to start the season because yeah. we're playing on substandard pitches, but the money was able to help invest. Again, kind of what you say, the money was there to be say, exploited, but to, exactly. to be useful. So I, I firmly believe that a lot of these pre-season tours, while they are ways to make money, where it be selling merchandise, promotional stuff, the whole PR bullshit that you see, I think it is also a dry run for what the future could be for football. Don't yeah. forget, don't forget the Italian Super Cup has been played in about eight different countries. I mean... The Spanish Super Cup is being played in, in the Middle East these days, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So community, I think it's... Yeah. Community Shield. Um, you've heard the story about why it got changed to the Community Shield instead of the Charity Shield. Because hardly any money was going to charity. Yeah. So why don't they just rename that to like the English Super Cup, whatever, and then you can get whatever money you want because you know the FA is going to just haul themselves out to the biggest bidder. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. I'm telling you. But I think it's a dry run for what's ha- what, a bigger thing that's going to happen in the future. Now, also, another thing I'm going to throw in, because let's uh, do this before we wrap it up, because it does yeah. almost an hour, half bloody old. But because of what happened during the pandemic, and we saw lots of football games being shown on TV more and more, whether it be with Amazon and obviously for the benefit of the viewers in, in various countries, we've got like three or four platforms, your BT, Amazon, Sky, and all of them show various games. So you're not going to see the same game on the same platform. So you going three, yeah, so it's, it's mix and match basically. But if you if you notice, they had a point where they were doing pay-per-view. Do you remember the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, they had pay-per-view? And I think eventually they're going to break away from the Premier League. They're going to create their own Super League and all the clubs are going to be able to sell their games online because they're going to make more money out of it. Because right now, yeah, they're making billions of a pound through the, the Premier League TV rights. But when they sell them individually, 
they're going to make more money out of it. And look, Arsenal might have, I don't know, 200 million fans worldwide. Well, let's just say 50% of them buy these online season tickets. Well, if you're charging them 10 quid and 100 million people buy them, <laughs> you do the well, maths. I'm going to... I've. I'd, sorry, I'd, as soon as you said this, I've had to pull up one of my tweets back from May. I said, rough price in here. If the Premier League set up their own streaming service and charge £250 a year, and that works out about £21 a month, yep. they'd need 9.6 million subscribers to break even. And for context, Sky have 22 or just over 22 million. They well, they go. they could do that for a cheaper. The infrastructure cost will be more, but if the Premier League owned their own rights and had people subscribe to it rather than selling them off, they'd make so much more. Of and course. I think that's going to become the next thing. Exactly what you've said there. It's going to become the next sort of evolution of the game. And and if you think about it, right? You talk about Man United Arsenal, for example, right? Man United. The, the, this whole thing about the whole Glazers out and, you know, United fans should boycott, it's not going to happen because even if the United fans do boycott, you're going to get the day trippers yes. or people being able to get a ticket to general sale. But if you look at the friendly between Arsenal and Man United, 86,000 people in America? Yeah. yeah. You, you know, and this is just in one in one city. Imagine and, if they do New York or and Unfortunately, Texas. where football fans think they have a voice, they don't. It's only in extreme circumstances they do. And I hate saying it, but other than the Super League, where fans really did kick up a fuss about it, clubs will go and do what they feel is best for the club, irrespective of yeah. fan voices. And yeah. the stuff that they do for the diehard fans is a nice media spin. I hate saying it. I sound negative, but it's true. You have, as you said there, the Glazers out. Oh, we want the Glazers out. Well, you not going, the day trippers are going, they're still getting their money. The value of the club is still going up. If you want to be nitpicking, United have spent nearly the same in the transfer market as Man City. The downside to it is that Man United haven't invested wisely because there's no football strategy there. Yeah. And that's an easy fix. Um, Darren Fletcher. I, I was going to United round about, well, when the Glazers obviously took over and I was at a lot of the protests. Okay, and I gave up my season ticket in 2010 because I was just fed up with the way the club was being run from top to bottom, and we're talking internally as well, from the manager to everything. So I'd I'd had enough, and I've still got mates that you know, God bless them, they go to and from London or other parts of the UK, and they go to United games, and they still want the Glazers gone. But the fact is, the Glazers ain't gonna leave because fans are telling them to leave. Okay, the amount of money that these and it's for every club, every elite club, right? FSG, Cronky, whatever. The club is making a massive turnover. They're making a massive profit. Okay, so irrespective of whether fans don't turn up, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that Man United and Arsenal and Liverpool, and to some extent Newcastle, can play all their games, all their league games abroad. And they won't even have to worry about losing money because they won't even need a stadium. Man United could do a world tour, play every Premier League team in every state in the United States, and they'll still sell out. The only way the Glazers will... If the Glazers redevelop uh, Old Trafford, 
or start to look for a new stadium, whatever the option may be, that's the only time they'll consider selling up once that's complete because the value of their assets will go up and they'll go, right, our shares will cost so much more, we can can sell them off. Yeah. That's that's the only way because at the minute, they've got the value of their assets of Old Trafford. I know it needs investment. I know the stadium's crumbling, but the value of that asset is worth more than what it is to re redevelop it. Yeah. Until, yeah, until that value drops and they go, okay, now we'll reinvest. All of a sudden you'll see the value of the club skyrocket again and then they can start selling off their shares. Yeah. But do you know what? One more thing before we wrap it up. Yeah. I, w- I want to talk quickly about Gary Neville because I don't have any personal vendetta against him. But when the whole Super League talk was being done, he was one of the most vocal people to say it shouldn't happen, yada, yada, yada. If Gary Neville didn't have hotel football around the corner from Old Trafford, would he be so vocal? This is one question that if I ever met him, I want to ask him, like, would would it? And I know he'd say, yeah, of course, it would, it would destroy the, the, the other teams. But let's get it right. Gary Neville... Two-foot- Salford are kind of destroying the, the lower leagues anyway. Yeah, know? Gary Neville is the most Tory Labour person you'll ever come across. And uh, it sounds hard, like, without going into too much politics, he's talking about, you know, the everyman, this, that and the other. Yet he is the one benefiting the most after in the last 20, 15 years under a Conservative government in terms of what he's been able to do at Salford with the, the not just the club, but the redevelopment stuff in Manchester. Yeah. He's invested a lot of money and made a lot of money out of it. So he yeah. picks and chooses when he complains about the government, but he's the one that's been benefiting off it a lot more than everyone else. He's been very smart about it, but people are starting to call him out on this book, uh, the BS, especially when he went on, have I got news for you about the Qatar? Yeah. So it's, I think the problem that he has or that he's going to start facing is where he's been on one side of the argument He's been so vocal to the extent of he's now going to get called a hypocrite because of it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas other players, I mean, like you look at the Jordan Henderson thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I said I had to say about that on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. So you can say whatever you want, mate. I'll agree with you. I know exactly what's coming. Look, it's whether people want to admit it or not, because he's not part of the LGBTQ plus community directly he is deemed an ally he will never have his he will always have a price yeah that's the fact that's the matter of fact unless you have someone directly close to you or you yourself are part of that community you will have a price and that's why i don't think you'll ever see someone like aaron ramsdale go because he's recently um in his players tribunal thing uh or players tribute has said about how his brother's uh, gay. Now, I don't think he'll go, he'd ever go to Saudi Arabia despite all the money because he's got that relative. I don't think Jordan Henderson has that same, or if he has, he's kept it quiet. But that player has a price. And at the end of the day, we all like to think that we're all moralistic, but unfortunately, money talks, rightly or wrongly, you will have a price. And if people give up on their morals I would pose the question of if it's a if it's a subject that you're supportive of but not directly affected by would you be swayed 
Mate, the fact is, right, unless unless it's a country where you feel you'd never go, then everyone's going to go. You're, you're going to go, okay? You know, there, there are a few countries in the world that I certainly wouldn't go, not for any religious or, or, or political purposes. It's because I just wouldn't want to go. It just doesn't appeal to me, you know? And I don't know what going to these countries would do with my life. But if someone said to me, Stel, here's a job in Saudi Arabia, I'm going. Yeah. Because forget the, the financial side of things. I know what that nation is like from a safety element as a heterosexual male. Yeah. There's the difference. So for you, it's beneficial. For other people, it's Absolutely. not. If the other people don't want to go because it's afflicting, well, their, their lives at risk, completely understand it. And unfortunately, if there's an opportunity for career progression, people will start to weigh up the cost, the cost of do I want to earn the money or do I want to have these morals? And unfortunately, in Henderson's case, because he's been so vocal before about the stand-up to homophobia and there's been an LGBTQ plus I ally, he shot himself in the foot. He's left himself exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas other players who may not have been as vocal won't get the same treatment for it. Yeah. But also don't forget, and this isn't a knock on the city, I'm not gonna do this because I'm not gonna I'm that kind of person, but how many Liverpool players current in the past have had their homes broken into <laughs> while they've been it happened with Di Maria as well at Man United, don't get me wrong. You know, Di Maria was playing and his missus was at home and people broke into his house and whatever, right? Is there a chance that maybe Henderson has had a tip-off a few times from the police saying that, you know, we've we've got wind, that someone's planning on breaking into your house while your family's there and you're playing for Liverpool? And now he's got this opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia where the chances of that happening are slim to none. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. And whilst we, I say we as a society will condemn other nations for their their views and their beliefs i think sometimes we are blissfully ignorant to how there are faults that lie in our country and that's not just in terms of views and beliefs that's how we are culturally how we are in terms of crime how we are to respect to one another um you know we we say we're we're pro this we're pro that yeah push comes to shove that those inequalities those prejudices still exist in our society yeah we just have that oh well we do a campaign to show that we care yeah but now these campaigns are becoming just lip service there's no yeah and i I realize we're going into a bit of a tangent with this but like (laughs) rainbow laces you put the laces on for one month and then at the end of the month they're gone i don't see a premier league player wearing them all year round and it's not to say they should but when you when it starts becoming that like um, a, a centre point, people get frustrated, and it does actually drive um, more criticism. Yeah, we, we talk we talk about the the taking the knee for Black Lives Matter. Um, if you didn't do it, you were racist. But then, when Wolf Zaha didn't want to do it, is he racist? No, mm. he came out and said it's an empty gesture. He felt there's not enough being done. So we can stand behind these gestures and say we're you know we're doing great things for society. But until we actually back them up, they're just mere, I'll be 
And it's bold to say, I think for some companies, I think it's just commercialism. Well, mate, look, at the end of the day, right, these companies will do things for the bottom line. That's yeah. all that matters, okay? And I'm, I'm just going to say this, right? Uh, this, this is the last thing I'm going to say before we, we finish this, right? <laughs> because you and I, we, we spoke about this on numerous occasions. And, you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch, when they had the Dylan Mulvaney uh, yeah. campaign, and it wiped off $25 billion off their market value. And now they're doing a, a, a 180 and their advertising campaign is for ex-army veterans. They're going to pump money into... And, and the thing is, again, if they didn't take such a hit financially, they wouldn't have yeah. done that 180. They'd have carried on doing it because they, they'd have felt that that ad campaign was financially viable for them. It wasn't because they wanted to do anything for the, that community. It wasn't. No. What they it wanted to do was take their money. Yeah, It's financially cost them, and they've gone, well, actually... Uh, we do support you guys, but we're not going to promote it now because it's affected our profits. So yeah. if anything, you're worse. You're worse for it because you're showing yourselves to be shills to go, we want to be seen for this because it will help our profits. It hasn't helped our profits. See you later. And that's yeah. going to be the same. It's going to be the same for uh, future campaigns in, in the UK. Um, and I know we're sort of going into more society and political stuff. But what happens with sport is a sport is a victim of, um, of sports washing. And I don't yeah. just mean from Saudi. I mean from every campaign there is, whether it's got the best intentions or not, it gets used to politicise a view. Now, the view you will agree with, some you will disagree with, but because you then politicise the sport, it will create that division. It will create more hatred from those that disagree with it. Yeah. And I think that's why you see, it's sad to say, I do think you still see the homophobia in football because the campaign is, it draws attention to it. And I, I know the backlash that would happen. Yeah. Pathetically, if a Premier League footballer came out tomorrow and said, I am gay, um, you know there'll be subconscious bias in the media and how they're portrayed which will put an intense spotlight on them, which is unfair. You'll yeah. see things in the media, and it will be innocuous, like gay Premier League footballer, name, name, it sounds like, why did you need to put the gay in? It yeah. draws attention to it, and it puts them under a spotlight. And there are people that are homophobic in the UK. Oh, there, will, sure. there are trolls Everywhere. In, you Everywhere. see trolls on, on, online. It will, draw, it will put a spotlight on that person and put such an untold amount of stress on them. No human ever deserves it. I can yeah. understand why no active footballers want to come out because yeah. some will try some companies will try to use them as a prior, but either way they will be put they will be shone a spotlight on and be so intensely criticized by those who disagree with their their views, it will make their life horrible. Don't get me wrong, there will be loads of people that will support them. Of course there will be. But there you know, unfortunately, the negative voices will be very loud very critical and it puts a stress on that person until we until we as a society become so accepting if i turn around and i'm gay and you went yeah that's fine what do you want for dinner like that that's how it should be and i think dare i say it by um when you look at the women's game i think they're a bit more developed in that sense because the sexuality is 
takes a backseat. There yeah. are more, there are more lesbians and bisexual players in the women's league, and they they've been very open about their sexuality, but they don't make it about them. Think, they, yeah, it's it's part of their identity. It doesn't consume their identity. And unfortunately, yeah. I feel that in the men's game, I don't think it would be the player. I don't think it would be the club. I think it would be companies that would look at, to commercialise it that would make it their ident- that player's identity solely yeah. opposed to yeah. it is a composition of who that person is. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh, we've gone very philosophical towards the end. Of course, of, course of course. Listen, there are other things that you and I can discuss, you know, and that's not even going into, you know, the whole uh, Man City ownership and various things that have been going... Look... I'm just going to say it, right? I saw an interview with Andy Burnham, who's the MP for Manchester, and someone obviously questioned him about the Abu Dhabi takeover of Man City. And, you know, he said, look, I don't agree with what's happening in that part of the world, but in Manchester, they've done so much for the community. Um, That's what I'm focused on. So, again, it goes back to bottom line. That's yeah. what it boils down to, you know. It's, they it's have, so he's happy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, he, he, what he's effectively saying, effectively, and he's like, well, this is not word for word, but I'm saying what he's effectively saying is, well, they haven't come here and brought all of their um, ideologies and thrown it in our faces, but all they're doing is throwing their money at us, and that's okay. And that's effectively what it is. They're not. He's not going to turn around and say, "Well, you guys are from a nation that is homophobic, and that's just, we we don't want you." What he's saying is, "Well, I'll take your money and regenerate my area to Im- improve unemployment and all that kind of stuff." So again, it's like you said, it's sports washing. And it happens everywhere. It isn't just Newcastle. Newcastle women's team's gone full time, and they're step three. Right. There, there are step two teams that are part time still. And they're step three. They're, they're all full-time. And this is from an ownership where women in sport is, is still sort of frowned upon. You look yeah. at Man City. They're one of the more dominant women's sides. Yeah. So. yeah. But the fact is, bro, and I'm just going to say it, there's no morals in football. And it no. isn't just about the sports washing. It's other things as well. But hey, it's another conversation for another episode, man. Look, Steve, thanks for joining me, man. No, really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you, everyone, for watching. And we'll be back next week. Goodbye. See ya.